With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dick Miller. If you're listening to Junk Food Cinema... Who are these guys? Welcome, Junkions, to an especially futile episode of Junk Food Cinema, brought to you by FilmSchoolRejects.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot, if you're not good at this sport, you get lanced a lot. This is the weekly cult and exploitation film cast so good that regardless of who you are or what fiefdom you call home, we will, we will pop rock you. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, the Ayatollah of Cherry Cola. And though I am no Jeffrey Chaucer myself, I have decided that in honor of this week's film, I am going to introduce my two co-hosts in in his style. So let me see how well I can do this. and ladies and everyone not sitting on a cushion my co-host comes from a humble beginning where once a worm now a lord of letters the lieutenant of megaforce and protector of mandroid sussy robert cargill hi i just had to do my weekly Hi. Yeah, no, if it if it's not there, then people get confused about what we're doing. Hey, and speaking of getting confused about what we're doing. I have the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing to you our special guest, a sovereign of song who can trace the lineage of music back beyond Sade, the rock, the hard place. The house core, Sir Todrick in the Shadows. Hi, also. Hello, Mister the Shadows. How's it going? I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, I got to watch a better movie for this one. I'm not complaining because you know I picked them both. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to complain when they were both your choices. But uh, obviously, you hated recording Street Fighter with us so much that you had to come back uh, for this film. And I, I like what you've done here, Todd. Is that you've You've given us the opportunity to talk about a movie that I've always wanted to cover that Cargill was never going to allow me to do otherwise. What? And now we're doing a f- yes, I know, crazy. What? No, this is none of that is true. This, that is all extremely true. There is no way we would have covered Street Fighter if Todd oh, was not oh, on the show. Oh, wait, no, I thought you were talking about tonight's. Yeah, no, I totally I was never going to let you do Street Fighter. Uh, yes but this week we're doing a film that we probably would have covered but wasn't on my urgent list as much as it was on cargill's so you've kind of split the difference between this i like that you're sort of the the mediator in this divorce i think you're doing a great job is what i'm saying 
Oh, man. That's that's good to know. And this week's film, of course, is a little film from 2001. Oh, wait, but before I tell you the title, uh, and before Cargill lets me do the business and then tell me five minutes later we haven't done the business, let's do the business. Hey, let's do business. Uh, if you like everything you've just heard, you can find our entire back catalog on iTunes, on Spreaker, on Stitcher, on Spotify, and all those other things that sound like made-up nights of the round table. You can also follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. And if you really like the show... I mean, you really like the show. You like the show more than Mark Addy likes playing in the in the world of knights and ladies. You can go to patreon.com slash Junk Food Cinema for as little as a dollar an episode. You get access to bonus content that nobody else gets to hear. And that's the business. And now, let's tell a knight's tale. William, if he believes enough, a man can do anything. We could do this. In one month, we could be on our way to glory and riches none of us ever dreamed of. You can't even joust. I think he's getting worse. He is getting worse. I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. You have to be of noble birth to compete. So we lie. My lords, my ladies. The privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing to you a knight sired by knights. William Thatcher didn't make the rules. He was born. I've waited my whole life for this moment. To break them. Yes! And you are Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland. Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. I would have him win my heart. He's won four tournaments in a row. On a horse, that man is unbeatable. If the nobles find out who you are, there'll be the devil to pay. And pray that they don't. Ulrich von Lichtenstein is not who he appears to be. They're gonna arrest you. A dozen royal guards. I love you. There's nothing else to do. Run, and I will run with you. I will not run! I'm a knight. I'm here to compete. William! no matter to me so long as i can call you my own so cargill what what i'll start with you what makes you love this movie so much well i mean there's there we're, we're gonna spend a whole hour on it but let's get no, down summarize to, it all right now that's what gonna, i'm asking you to do i'm gonna i'm gonna lay it out it's a fucking brian Helgeland movie so of course we're gonna fucking talk about it we we hear worship at the altar of brian Helgeland. Uh, you guys know his uh, some of his previous films that we've talked about, like Payback and a little thing called Man on Fire. Um, he directed three films in this era. I like all of them. Uh, I, As we talked about, I, I really do kind of I'm torn, but I really do love his his cut of Payback. Uh, and Man on Fire, uh, uh, Man on Fire, of course, is a brilliant script. But then A Knight's Tale is a work of demented genius. I, I love everything that it does. Every note it plays, it plays perfectly. It's doing something weird and different, and it has something behind that. It's not just aesthetic. Uh, and it creates a wonderful, feel-good Saturday afternoon film. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think uh, what I loved most about this reviewing is that it never really dawned on me how perfect a sports movie A Knight's Tale is. But A Knight's Tale really is a perfect sports film. Oh, absolutely. 
100% a sports film. It even plays by all the sports film rules. Um, it's it's wonderful that way. It is both a classic tale uh, and a sports movie. And that's something you just don't fucking see. Agreed. So, Todd, where, where are you coming at this movie from? When did you first see it? What, what are your thoughts? I have very, very fond memories of this because I, I want to say I was like we were like visiting family or something. I was a kid and dad was just spontaneously. Hey, why don't we all go see a movie? And we did, and we went to see A Nice Tale, and I don't remember hearing a thing about this movie. I don't remember seeing the trailer or knowing a thing about it. And we go in there, we have no idea what to expect. Or we, we have expectations. We think we're going to see, like, Gladiator or something like that. And they start stomping, we will rock you. And then they start singing along. And my dad, who's expecting to see Rob Roy or something like that, he's got the... His jaw has literally dropped as he tries to understand what he is seeing. And I, I can still see his face right now, 20 years later. <laughs> and, but like, and by the end of it, like, it all kind of works. Like, it seems like it's a joke at the beginning. And then by the end, you are just like completely sucked in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that's the, the biggest thing that most people remember and the thing that I think has kept some people at arm's length is the idea that you have a movie set in the Middle Ages using popular music anachronistically. And on the one hand, I can understand to a certain extent why that might put you off because, you know, most sports films don't put sports and the works of Jeffrey Chaucer so close together. <laughs> but at the same time, because it's a sports film, every fucking needle drop in this movie works supremely well on that level in a normal movie like in a modern day movie all this stuff would be just too on the nose right but because it's about medieval jousting it i was like no i get what we're going for i get like all these cues on being on the nose helps you tell what like the the tone is supposed to be so perfectly and otherwise all the you know the fancy silly knight stuff it just it might seem like remote and it's not yeah, no, I mean, what he was going for, what Helgeland was doing is genius. Um, he was he wasn't playing around just with anachronism. He wanted to convey the feeling of what um, medieval times felt like to the people there. Uh, that was the the whole kind of impetus behind it was what he wanted to do was he wanted to take one of the things is that when you watch period films, they're always really detached. You know, you always feel like it's stuffy or boring. Um, as many of you guys know, I'm a I'm a big fan of Jane Austen movies. Um, I eat them up with a fucking spoon, and they always get to the big dance in most of the uh, in most of the movies, and it always seems really weird. And you get the vibe of the dialogue, but how are they really having fun? Like, how is that any fun? And here he brilliantly does this thing where he starts out playing Golden Years. Um, with purely old time instruments and they're dancing in the way they are. And then there's a moment where it flips and Bowie's golden years uh, just roars in. And all of a sudden they're dancing like people would dance nowadays. And the whole point of that scene is to convey, this is the type of fun they're having. This is their rock and roll. It's this whole idea that every generation believes that it invented sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And every generation has it. Uh, and he was trying to convey that through music that we all have emotional resonance to and particularly works for a sports movie. If you think you've heard David Bowie before, wait till you've heard David Bowie played on a lyre. That's when you really understand the majesty of David Bowie. That seems great because they really hold off on it 
they're like they really let that in a slow build because you're waiting for it because like there's been nothing but rock and roll throughout the entire movie and they start playing this medieval stuff and like are they gonna do it and you hear just like the tiniest bit of Bowie in the background, and they hold off for another thirty seconds, and then it explodes into like Saturday Night Fever. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. no, it, it should have been it should have been a Sting song with how tantrically they're drawing out the <laughs> crossover when they finally when you finally realize you're in the middle of a David Bowie mashup. It's like, oh god, this is perfect. If I ever lose my faith in you. I don't know if Sting made a whole lot of dance music, honestly. <laughs> oh, you don't get down to Brand New Day? I'm j- I'm in my living room just dancing up a storm to Zapple Zapple Brand New Day. No, that actually that sounded like Randy Randy Newman. Sorry, it was very Randy Newman. Yeah, that was that was not even remotely a Sting impression. <laughs> you got a friend in me. <laughs> don't stand so close to me. Uh, oh my God! Tell me, sidebar. <laughs> Tell me, like, it would not be the greatest worst thing of all time is, like, Randy Newman covers all of the police. <laughs> like, Randy Newman does covers of police songs. I would listen. I would hate myself for it, but I would listen to that CD. Just like the old man in that book by Nabokov. <laughs> Message in a bottle, yeah. <laughs> I want volume TV. I would fuck it all day. I would listen to that fucking <laughs> CD. Come on, guys. Anyway, Stargrove. Stargrove. One of my other favorite things about A Knight's Tale, and I've talked about this before, but I am kind of obsessed with movies from the early 2000s. There's just, there's such a precious time capsule. Like, they're not like movies from the 90s, and they're not like movies that came out just four years later. They are they're just like they exist in their own world and this movie is so y2k it may have actually been produced by ask jeeves should have asked jeeves i mean we've got shannon sasamon we got rufus sewell heath ledger is a romantic lead directed by brian hugelin uh with music by napster apparently so definitely <laughs> like one of the most y2k movies ever and that's crazy because it is a period piece but again we're getting music from the queen from the minstrels of war from lord bowie of mars and sirs bachman turner and overdrive well you know you say about like heath ledger in his one of his romantic roles and his you know and i was watching this i was like wow this is like a medieval sports movie but the more i watched it i was like actually this is also kind of a medieval teen movie totally absolutely uh and it's this cast is fucking absurd like, this is one of those really absurd casts that at the time they were, you know, some of them were character actors. Some of them were, you know, had done bigger things, but not necessarily like things that made them stars. This is Shannon Sossaman's first movie. Um, uh, she hadn't made anything before this. Um, you know, this was early Ledger uh, when he was just starting to really kind of catch on. Um, of course, you know, fucking Rufus Sewell is goddamn amazing. Um, Paul Bettany, this is the movie that a lot of people like woke up to how great Bettany was. Um, uh, of course, Alan Tudyk. Uh, and then the, the weirdest one is, uh, uh, Bernice Bejo or, or Bejo from the artist. Yeah. She's in the artist. Um, this is just a small role. Um, she didn't speak English at the time. Um, so her and Shannon were constantly in scenes together and couldn't communicate except through a translator. Um, and she apparently did all of her English phonetically. Oh, wow. And uh, 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 I actually and I, oddly enough, I know this because uh, um, uh, uh, I have a weird 
I have a weird history with this film as well. Uh, and this film has a weird history in that um, I, I saw it as a critic and fell in love with it. And um, uh, I was working in a video store at the time and we got the video in and then 9-11 happened. And the video and DVD for A Knight's Tale had the Spider-Man teaser that had the World Trade Center in it on all the copies. So they had to recall them uh, uh, to to get rid of the wow. the ads. Oh, um, wow. And um, so uh, the, uh, we ended up sitting with a couple copies in our store for like two or three weeks before they could put it out. And so I had uh, uh, I had watched it several times in the store. Um, and just had it on. And uh, uh, and then shortly thereafter, I ended up going on a last minute trip to L.A. as my first trip as a film critic for Ain't It Cool News and ended up on the set of Rules of Attraction where I met Shannon for the first time. And uh, we ended up hanging out for a couple of days and chatting. And I, you know, I what I recognized her. I'm like, oh, man, I'm a huge fan of Knight's Tale. And she goes, how could you be a huge fan? It's like, it just, it, but nobody saw it in a theater and it just came, it's not even out on video yet. And I'm like, no, but I've watched it on video a couple of times already. She's like, it's not out. And I'm like, I work in a video store. We have it. And we started talking about it. And she was like, holy shit, you actually really know this movie. Oh my God. You, you, you like weren't making that up. Like you really like, and I'm like, yeah, I really like this fucking movie. And we ended up chatting a whole lot about it. And so she told me stories from, from set at such. And then we would not end up running into each other again until we made a movie together a few years ago, Sinister Two. Um, and in fact, we were never on set at the same time. So we ended up only meeting on the press tour. Uh, but it was really kind of a neat thing to have, you know, my very first trip out to L.A. I end up, you know, spending time with her and then end up doing press with her one day on uh, uh, on a movie uh, like some 14 years later. Uh, but so but I, I very much remember sitting around with her for a couple hours, just like picking her brain on on crazy stories uh, from the set. And that was the thing that I was really kind of most taken by was the how the weirdness of having to be like. You know, uh, Shannon and 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 Bejo are literally in every scene together at some point. Like they had, they spent weeks together shooting this, and absolutely, positively, could not speak to one another. Um, and I, I just have always been kind of struck by the weirdness of that. Speaking of the video, I my parents brought the DVD because you know that this was two thousand one or two. Mm -hmm. That's what we bought, and I watched that thing back to front. Uh, like some 20 times I will watch all the deleted scenes. I watched, listen to the commentary. So, uh, I am also an expert on a night's tale. <laughs> yeah. Is that the, uh, was that one of those DVDs that started with, uh, how great is DVD watch Keanu Reeves do, do the matrix backwards. And then we're going to wipe across the screen to show you how much better it looks than VHS. VHS is for losers. DVD. I believe it was one of those. And, uh, 2001 2002 was the glory day of dvd like everyone has like if a movie came out that year you had it oh and they it, it's where they really started you started getting stuff like um new line platinum editions that had like the best special features of anything that wasn't criterion um and they were everybody was going nuts with commentary tracks and special features because for the first time you could really do that previously you, if you could throw it on laser disc and like 12 people would watch it 
Um, and now like everybody could do this. And all of us started going to this weird small window of film school where we were listening to all the commentaries on all the films. Hey, asshole, you want to suck a little bit less? Get Die Hard with a Vengeance on DVD. <laughs> well, and then and then like eight years later, it would they, they did the same thing with Blu-ray with like scenes from Troy. Troy, fucking Troy. Look at all these CG ships in 1080p. <gasps> what? Blu-ray. Blu-ray. That shit drove me crazy. I'm like, yeah, because the thing. Sidebar. Ah! Because the thing is, if I'm watching this ad, it's because I bought a fucking Blu-ray. And if I bought a fucking Blu-ray, the only way I'm seeing this ad is if I have a Blu-ray player. So you're kind of preaching to the choir, Troy, which, you know, obviously Homer's epic is all about buying Blu-ray players. So I get it. I know why you did the crossover. But for fuck's sake, I already. Sorry. Stargrove. So this is very early on in Heath Ledger's career. In fact, Helgeland cast him because he saw the dailies of the Patriot. The Patriot hadn't even come out yet, which was his second movie. I mean, you had 10 things I hate about you in 99. Second American movie. Second American movie, I should say. Yes. Uh, So 10 things I hate about you in 99 and then the Patriot in 2000. But it wasn't even out yet when he was cast in A Knight's Tale. And he plays William Thatcher, uh, a man of of humble birth, who is a squire to a a knight who shits himself to death. And guys, I got to tell you, that's the way I want to go. If we have a chance to pick how we exit this mortal coil, shitting yourself to death is, well, I mean, it's probably going to be the way I go out anyway, but it's it's how I would want to go. Who doesn't want to go out like Elvis? Like, right? that's, that's the Elvis. Or Don Simpson. I mean, the, the way that you go is as important as how you lived your life. On the can. On the can. Yes. Junk food cinema. It's a, the landscape is food. There's a line in this movie immediately about where we are right now where someone says the landscape is food. And I'm like, man, if there was ever anything that sums up this podcast, it's the line, a landscape of food. You're not wrong. So the the night that he's squiring for dies uh, halfway through, uh, I guess, during the the halftime of a match, which is funny because if you guys notice throughout the rest of the movie, there is no break in the middle of a jousting match. But apparently uh, this night in particular was already up two or three lances to none, two or three strikes to none and had to get back to the match where he was going to forfeit. But I'm like, did they literally take a take a halftime in the middle of a single jousting match? I'm guessing so. I'm guessing you told me he had to take a shit. <laughs> And the rest is history. Um, so Heath Ledger, uh, as William Thatcher, puts on the the armor and finishes out the match so that they can win the prize. And he gets just enough of a taste of it. That he's like, you know what? I, I want to do this all the time. And it turns out you can't compete in jousting if you're not of noble birth. So herein lies the problem for our young William. And William is, of course, accompanied by Wash. And Bobby B. Wash and Bobby, as they are credited, actually, at the top of the film. Robert Baratheon. Well, Mark Addy was all, had some credits already. He was mm-hmm. he was in the full Monty. But this was like a breakthrough role for Alan Tudyk. Yeah. Well, and I was like, to me, he'll always be the Knight's Tale guy. Oh, yeah. When I watched Firefly, he was like, yeah, that's the Knight's Tale guy again. Yeah, and didn't Mark Addy, wasn't he like, play, he'd fl- played Friends, Fred Flintstone before this? Like, that's how most people knew him. Uh, not, not before this. I don't think Viva Rock Vegas had come out prior to night. Now the original, I can't believe I'm saying this. The original Flintstones movie, uh, had been out already, but I don't believe the sequel. And again, it's called Viva Rock Vegas. 
I love how pained you are having to acknowledge that Viva Rock Vegas is a film that came out a year before A Knight's Tale. It stars the second worst Baldwin, and he's only the second... (laughs) Guys, he's only the second worst if you add Adam Baldwin to the Baldwin family, even though he's not a Baldwin. That's not that's like problem six with I, we're not here to talk about Viva Rock Vegas. That's not that was not my intention. Somehow Cargill managed to derail my thoughts entirely. I, I love how how sore that nerve is. Like you just twisted that nerve a bit. And all of a sudden you start having Viva Rock Vegas flashback because I like, like it was fucking nom. Fine. You know what? Because I like the original one. I know it's ridiculous, but I think that it's some of the best casting you've ever seen. John Goodman as Fred Flintstone and Rick Moranis as Barney is is some of the greatest casting in any film ever. And so I actually watched that second one and for some reason have all of this useless information about the second one, even though I hated it from the first viewing stuck in my head and I don't understand why it won't go away. So next week, of course, we're covering the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. (laughs) Only if Todd comes back again. I feel like that's going to be what happens. You can just disinvite me. I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Cargill's right. Oh, I hate it when this happens. Cargill's right. The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas came out in 2000, A Knight's Tale 2001. So, yeah, I guess we're just going to say fuck the full Monty and say that everyone knew him from the Flintstones in Viva Goddamn Rock Vegas. (laughs) Yes. Not as the fat keyboardist from Jack Frost who consoles... uh, Michael Keaton's wife when he becomes a snowman. No, 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 no. Viva Rock Vegas. That's where we know him from. Viva Rock Vegas. <sighs> Stargrove. Stargrove. <laughs> so yes, Mark Addy's in this movie is what we were trying to trying to let you know. And I keep forgetting that he is Robert Baratheon. He's Bobby B. He's Bobby B. Robert Baratheon. No, he's he's great in this, and uh, as is as is Wash, uh, as is Alan Tudyk. Um, and you know, it's fucking all over the IMDb trivia. God, this is where we're really testing the limits of the word trivia when people are like, well, you know, uh, this movie has Paul Bettany, who is Vision and Heath Ledger, who is Joker and Alan Tudyk, who is the voice of the Joker on that, that, uh, Harley Quinn show on the DC network. He's also on that Doom Patrol show on the DC network. So Alan Tudyk is apparently the mayor of the DC network. I didn't even know this. No, he does a lot of voice work. Like he's he's one of those actors who he he's, he still does live action stuff, but gets so much voice work uh, that it's ridiculous. So Bobby B. Wash and the Joker are walking down the street and wouldn't you know it? They run into a naked Chaucer. Tell me that doesn't sound like the setup of a very strange joke. Yeah. And that scene is so great. And it's it's such a wonderfully fearless performance by Bettany, who's naked for like five minute scene. Like, he's just standing there butt-fucking-naked. There are shots framed with his ass, and he's just going for it. And, like, just totally goes for it and becomes this charming, you know, clearly destitute man that they end up taking along with them. Every human being in this movie is great, but it is absolutely Paul Bettany's movie. Like, he steals the entire thing. 100%. Like I was shocked to know he was to find out he was not a star already. Like you would think he'd been, you know, like the biggest name in the world for a long time. Yeah, no, he. It, this was really in the era that he blew up because it was it was this movie coupled with his performance in A Beautiful Mind, where everybody just kind of woke up and was like, "Oh wow, this guy's amazing." And I mean, he'd been around, but he hadn't connected yet. 
And this was this was the thing where a lot of geekdom went, oh, holy shit, this guy, this guy's amazing. He's so charismatic. And he just like every time he steps up and becomes the hype man, it's like this is the greatest hype man of all time. Oh, yeah. He's he's a, a Knight's Tales Flava Flav. I mean, he is an epic fucking hype man. And on top of everything else, I'm glad that they gave him that that role to play because if he weren't the hype man so much of his character in this movie would hinge upon the audience's knowledge of, a, of Canterbury Tales there are so many fucking references to Canterbury Tales that thank God for IMDb because I fell asleep in that particular uh, edition of 10th grade AP English because I don't fucking know anything about Canterbury Tales and they just keep referencing it through the whole movie yeah no I we covered Knight's Tale like the next the next year after I watched this movie and I'm just like waiting for you know we will rock you to show up in the poetry and as it just never happened I was like I don't like this I don't get it <laughs> this isn't the movie well yeah to be fair to be fair to be fair I'm pretty sure Kublai Khan does have multiple references to Bohemian Rhapsody so you're gonna be fine <laughs> I can't prove that for certain because again I slept a lot during AP English but I'm almost positive that that's the case so in exchange for clothing uh, and food and a chance to uh, just kind of get back on his feet, uh, Jeffrey Chaucer, played by Paul Bettany, agrees to forge some documents that makes it seem as if uh, young William is, in fact, of nobility and under the name of Ulrich von Lichtenstein, which, man, that's a great goddamn name. <laughs> <laughs> he stumbles over every time. He, he can never seem to even remember his own name. I've been there. I don't know. He doesn't he doesn't seem to think it's a very cool name. That's true. That's true. He he does trip over it quite a bit. Uh but it turns out he's pretty damn good at joust and even better uh at sword fighting, so they are immediately successful, but uh they cross paths with a sinister figure played by Rufus Sewell who is a, I mean he's basically the the team Iceland. I mean for people my age, he's the team Iceland of this movie. He is the ultimate <laughs> sports villain. I love that you ran to Mighty Ducks. Yeah. Mighty Ducks 2. The legend continues. <laughs> the legend of Curly's gold. The legend of the legend of Iceland's gold. <laughs> you know, you were asking, you were saying this is a sports movie, and I was like, huh, well, actually, which sports movie is it? And I was like, well, it's got to be the Karate Kid, I guess. I, I could get I could get behind that. It's not it's not a perfect match, but like Rufus Sewell is absolutely William Zabka. He just sneers through every scene like like he's got that perfect you just farted at me face yeah and this is an era where Sewell was on fire like he was fucking everywhere uh if you needed to add some real gravitas to your movie you brought in Rufus Sewell and of course most of you will know him best from something like uh Dark City um uh or you know one of my you know I've talked about it several times my favorite uh Shakespearean uh, film, uh, the uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, he plays Fortinbras, where talk about, you know, talk about having real gravitas after a four hour movie with some of the greatest actors in the world. Rufus Sewell walks in and completely steals the rest of the movie and is just amazing. Um, and he pop, he, pop, he still pops up to this day. But um, this era, there was like this six year run of him where he was just everywhere and was fucking awesome. I really wish I had never. And, and Todd, I don't know if you're you probably have heard this song before, but that rap song Rack City. I wish I had never heard it because now anytime anyone says Dark City, all I can think is Dark City, bitch, Dark, <laughs> dark, dark, dark City. City, bitch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, I'm glad I'm not alone on that because holy shit, that's yeah. like the 15th time that that movie has come up, and every time in my head I'm like, Dark City, bitch, Dark Dark City. <laughs> Just gonna wait for it to go away. But yeah, Rufus Sewell is great. I also love the idea of this being a medieval karate kid because then it's just somebody in the crowd's like fetch it the body bag ho like i would I'm, I'm here for it i'm absolutely fucking here for it and then we get to um my favorite other person who's in this movie that nobody ever mentions is in this movie uh in which james purefoy shows yeah! solomon kane um wait have we covered solomon kane yet i don't think we have done a full regular feed episode on solomon kane We've got to do Solomon fucking Kane. Take a drink, junkies, because that movie fucking rules. Absolutely. Take a drink out of a mug made of somebody's bones, because we are absolutely fucking covering Solomon Kane. And much like Solomon Kane, fucking pure voice saving the day in this movie, too. Yeah. Well, in this particular time, he shows up It's and, and our villain freaks the fuck out. Like he's just not he finds out that he's supposed to joust against him. And this guy is the prince of uh, the crown prince of England. He will become king when his father dies. Nobody wants to fuck with this guy. I mean, his nickname is the black. He is Edward the black. The black prince is an awesome. Yes, he is the black prince. And so nobody wants to fuck with this guy, especially the villain. And so he um. Uh, he uh, uh, bows out of of jousting against him. And of course, you see on Edward's face, he's just disappointed. He was really looking forward to knocking the shit out of that guy. And um, <laughs> also, one of the things about this film, there is an undercurrent. He does not like this knight that is that is, serves him. He just doesn't fucking like him. And throughout the movie, there's this, he never openly says it, but you can tell the way he like looks at the guy and the little uh, side stories that involve him. He really doesn't fucking like this dude. Um, but so he, you know, bows out, it moves on and he goes to, uh, ride against William and William finds out at the last second who he is. And William's just like, fuck it. I'm going for it. And he goes and he jousts against him. And, uh, and in that moment, he cements, he does the thing that this entire movie is about. It's you can change your stars. And the thing is, is he was given that moment to make a choice. And the choice he made was absolutely the right choice because he completely earned the respect of um, of the crown prince of England. And so that will come into play much, much later. Yeah. And I love that this movie is able to do what so many medieval times franchises were unable to do, which is make jousting awesome. And that's what I'm like the way that they shoot the jousting, the stunt dude. Some of the stunt writing in this movie is like the best you've seen since Douglas fucking Fairbanks was working on horses. It's incredible. Oh, like I, I remember from the DVD commentary about how like they empty, they hollowed out the lances so it wouldn't hurt anybody. And then they like filled it with linguine so that it would like just explode into pieces. And it looks amazing each and every time. Yeah, it does. A woefully irresponsible waste of pasta, but <laughs> the effect is pretty magnificent. And speaking of uh, catching things on camera, we weren't, but I'm going to. The opening shot of this film with the where they're putting the text on screen like jousting was the people's sport of the ages. There is an incredible takedown of a jouster that apparently was an accident. It was Heath Ledger's stunt double setting up for a shot and something went wrong but it looked so good that they had to put it somewhere in the film. So it's literally the footage that you see as the text is like, and also these big sticks. Uh, You're just like, holy shit, is that guy okay? And he wasn't. And he was not. 
He was unconscious and he was in the hospital for a little bit. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, and you saw it on on screen. Great stunt work. Also, I really want to point out the the most bizarre factoid of this movie was Helgeland was having a very hard time getting extras to fill those stands. And so they literally went and rounded up homeless people and dressed homeless people up. And that's why they literally that the the see the moment there's a great moment of comedy in the movie that is purely accidental. And it's the uh, Jeffrey Chaucer has just given the speech about who uh, 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 Ulrich von Lichtenstein is and nobody reacts. And that's where uh, Mark Addy just goes. And then the crowd reacts because none of them spoke English and most of them were homeless and they had no idea what they were doing. And when he did that, they all roared and cheered and uh, and that they, they found that so funny that they left it in the movie. Yeah, no, you're right. They they shot this in Prague, and I remember that because apparently they were shooting from hell right next door in Prague while Heath Ledger was dating Heather Graham. So this was really just like a a side by side Prague vacation for the two of them. Um, so yeah, they filled the stands with a lot of uh, homeless extras, all of whom were on set and watching for Paul Bettany's first day of shooting, where he was completely naked. So I'm sure that was a hell of an introduction to the world of filmmaking for Paul Bettany. I remember, like, there's a comment on the commentary where, like, Helgen was like, yeah, Bettany was fearless. He was just really trying real hard to keep his ass closed. <laughs> Especially in that second naked scene where he's, like, being, like, headlocked down, pulled down. He's like, clench. <laughs> I feel like Vision does the same thing. I mean, that's what that stone is for, is it gives him the power to always keep his ass closed. Well, they have they have a butthole wrangler on the marble set. <laughs> That is a very butt clenched character, I feel. I, I don't think they've actually had a butthole wrangler since Edward Norton left the movies. But the thing is, <laughs> oh, oh, shade thrown. Take that guy who makes more money than I'll ever see in my life. Boom. Got him. Anywho. <laughs> this movie. <laughs> yes, this movie. This movie. So, I mean, what I, what I do like is there's a scene where Rufus Sewell, who is clearly pursuing Shannon Sossman's character, um, sits down and very succinctly explains the rules of joust scoring. And I'm not, this is not a bit, I am really appreciative that that scene is there because do you know what that little scene was missing from? Uh, the Clint Eastwood movie Invictus. I had no idea yeah. what the fuck was happening in that rugby match. They keep cutting back to the scoreboard. I'm like, is that good? Is that bad? What, what? I don't understand what the stakes are or why I'm supposed to be invested in this. And in 13 seconds, Rufus Sewell's like, let me explain how jousting works without the audience really realizing that that's exactly what I'm doing for them well you know i again from this is from the commentary uh you know helgland was talking to sewell and sewell's like not looking forward to this uh scene he was like do i have you know this is an exposition scene i don't like no one's gonna like this and helgland was like no 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 it's not exposition it's sex position (laughs) (laughs) and you, you know there's he is absolutely flirting like him explaining the rules is his move, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like it, and it works. It it narratively works. It's and the thing is, is it also sets up the whole concept where she's just trying to get rid of this guy and uh, and is playing the part that she knows she's got to play. 
and he is mansplaining to her. And he's like, oh, well, allow me to explain to you, madam, how a joust works. <laughs> and we audience catch on. And and it's something that happens in a lot of sports films, especially when you don't understand it. And in fact, just thinking of that scene, it reminded I know which sports film this is. This is Whip It. Oh, okay. Here we go. Yeah. Oh. It is absolutely Whip It. It is this person who is competing in this this sport that is very much about flinging yourself into other people. And it's all built on a lie. And the, you have to keep the lie quiet and secret. And then the person gets more popular and more popular and more popular until it finds out who her parents really are, at which point... Uh, all hell breaks loose. She gets kicked out and then finally is allowed back in, is given, granted the title with the truth. She can finally be who she really is. And uh, and all is well. And and you describe jousting as throwing your body into the other person. I'm now understanding why you got fired from medieval times, uh, because you're just <laughs> jumping off the horse into the other guy. Like, I got the tackle. That works. It's like, God damn it. This isn't rugby. You're fired. Look, we, we've talked about this. We do not talk about my time at medieval times. You're right, because there were no utensils, but there was Pepsi. There was Pepsi. But I like the idea of describing it as sex position, because my favorite sex position is actually called the Dark City. So I, me and Rufus Sewell are kind of on the same wavelength when it comes to that. I thought it was the 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 Brown Road. It may be. You know what? We don't need to. That's that's a little too personal. The Cleveland steamer. You know what? As as Heath Ledger says in this movie when he's putting the uh, the nose plugs in. This one's for the left. This one's for the right. Uh, which, by the way, is one of my favorite gags in this movie. And I am one thousand percent convinced it was an ad lib uh, where he's literally he's got these two pieces of of cloth stuck up his nose when they're investigating the body of the dead knight and when he hands the nose plugs to mark addy he says this one's for the left this one's for the right and it's like they're it doesn't matter it doesn't matter at all but it's such a great fucking gag and i'm like i i, I have a feeling like heath ledger was the kind of guy who must have i mean we've already talked about that that scene on the uh, during the filming of this where uh, Mark Addy did actually have to coach the crowd into cheering. So there was clearly some ad libbing going on. And I just get the the impression watching all these these films with Heath Ledger that he was the kind of person that could just pull stuff like that out of his ass in the middle of a shot and just make it work. It also might have been for continuity. Like he may have been telling him which one was which. <laughs> Can you imagine if they got that mixed up? The shot wouldn't have made any sense. You know, we, we actually missed a, a, a major character. Yes, we have. We have not. We have not gotten to everyone yet. We have not talked about the blacksmith yet. We have not talked about Kate. Ah, uh, yes, Laura Fraser from Breaking Bad. Oh, was she? Wait, what? She's in Breaking Bad. She's Lydia. Oh yeah. Are you fucking? Oh my God, she is. Whoa. <sighs> wow, that just kind of blew my mind a little bit. That broke my my brain. From from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, Lydia, very different character than she plays in this movie, which is a. Uh, She's the blacksmith. She, they need someone to uh, fix her their armor, and they manage to con her into it. And she also invents steel. She invents Bessemer steel at some point. Because why not? Yeah, she. Inv- you know, I was a little suspicious when she's hammering out that chess piece, and the barrel she's hammering on said methylene. I really should have been clued <laughs> into the fact that she was from Breaking Bad, but I missed it. She is also, you know, it, I, I do love this movie, but I got to talk about one of the things that really bugs me about it. And it's it's her doing. And I'm just going to call it Swooshgate because I am fine with all of the the contemporary needle drops and the anachronistic sports movie stuff. But Nike swooshes on the armor. Did we have to? Did we really have to put Nike swooshes on the armor? Yes. Yes, we did. God damn it. You know, 
like I said, we were expecting to watch something like Gladiator when we came in there. One of the big things about, big trivia about Gladiator, which is a big reason why I don't like this movie, is that there was going to be a scene where uh, Maximus does product endorsements, (laughs) and they cut it because it seemed anachronistic, even though that is actually literally a thing that happened with Gladiators. Yeah. They cut it because it didn't feel right, or, you know, it didn't felt anachronistic, and advertising exists i am fine with that like i much prefer it this way in a nice tale i it probably didn't have to be the swoosh yes that's that's my problem i'm I'm totally with you if okay let me put it to you this way if there's a scene of maximus you know doing product placement promoting something because gladiators did that fine if maximus in the middle of a fight goes my sword finds its target and you can find anything on (laughs) bing.com that's the problem that's where i run into a problem I mean, I I would argue that it just goes in with the theme of what he's doing, where what he's trying to do is what Helglund's trying to do is subtly explain to the audience that they're watching a sports film, that they're not watching, um, you know, a sword and sandals epic. They are watching a sports movie. And that is very much what that is. It's it is it is a small little anachronistic moment. It's like, oh, hey, here's my logo. The logo happens to be the Nike swoosh. We all get that. You know, she, they don't go so far as to, you know, um, you know, uh, have a moment where he's like, I don't want to wear that. And she goes, just, just do it. it. I was waiting like, for it. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Yeah, they, they don't do that. It's just it's the Nike swoosh. It's a cute moment. And I don't find it any more jarring than many of the other um, anachronisms in the film. She does call it the marks of my trade. Literally a trademark, literally a trademark. And I was like, oh, OK, that's that's cute. that was like the one thing I was like. That that's the one thing that kind of made me grimace a little bit. It's like everything else, I am totally on board with. I don't I don't need Nike swooshes in the goddamn armor. I'm I'm okay with the swoosh. I'm a little fuzzy. I'm a little iffy on the fact that she invented steel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's be honest here. If a woman had in fact invented steel, some man would have taken credit for it. This is true. Yeah, but like 400 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I say as if I know anything about steel or metallurgy or the history of it, but I, I will say there was some real pedantic shit in the IMDb trivia. One of my favorites is like the guy who's like, he says gilding the lily. And the first usage of that wasn't until the I'm like, Queen is on the soundtrack. Shut the fuck up. If you are on board with We Will Rock You, shut the fuck up about gilding the lily. You have missed the point. Yeah. Like it, Alan Tudyk just says hello <laughs> at one point. It's called a loss. Hello. And and Shannon Sossman is is she's dressed like Gwen Stefani in every scene. Like her outfits are absolutely ridiculous and don't even look remotely uh contemporaneous. No, no, I mean she is definitely a hollaback wench, for sure. <laughs> I'm with you there. And it's like all of that stuff I'm on board with. It was just and maybe it was because it was two upside down swooshes, which ironically made me wonder if that's how they were getting around trademark while they were discussing the invention, apparently, of the word trademark. I don't know. But there were just a lot of things about that. I'm like, I'm glad this only lasts about a second. And then we're on to her describing what steel is. Uh, and, my, and of course, my favorite uh, in note to that is that all of the other knights are laughing at Heath Ledger because his armor is so small. But then he jumps right up on the back of the horse with no assistance. And they're all like, well, fuck. All, all the laughing stops immediately. <laughs> It's, it's one of those great moments where they're just kind of having fun at his expense and all of a sudden it dawns on them what's really going on. And it's that, 
oh, fuck, we're the assholes. And it's such a good moment. It's so great. I love that moment so much. There's a there's a scene kind of similar to that earlier, like when he's still using his old janky armor, and uh, Rufus Sewell's looking at him, I was like, oh, an antique. I was like, oh, a shield. Are we still using those? And like apparent, and I looked it up. It's like, yeah, they were not using really sh- not really using shields by that point in medieval times. I was like, it's like a weird. Uh, a weird tribute to actual history there in this extremely ahistorical movie. I just realized that you could put to rest anybody. When we post this episode, if anybody complains about the anachronisms, the only response we should have, the three of us, is, dude, I got a lot of tables. <laughs> because it literally is like uh, there was no gilding the lily, but there was queen. It's like, dude, I got a lot of tables. Okay, let's just let's just fucking move on. <laughs> it's a sports movie. Rufus Sewell is the bad guy. And al- also, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, Todd, the movie Gladiator, because I got a real strong Gladiator vibe watching this movie. And not just because Rufus Sewell has Joaquin Phoenix's haircut from Gladiator, but there are scenes that are straight up fucking mirrored. Like the scene where once uh, it is revealed that, in fact, a will is not ulrich von lichtenstein he is put in in chains and he's in the dungeon and uh rufus sewell's character comes to visit him before the big match and it's just like it's almost exactly the scene from gladiator where commandus comes in and has that dis- that talk with uh with maximus before he ultimately like stabs him and i was just like wow wow there's so many parallels to gladiator it's kind of blowing my mind you know it's funny like it's not only gladiator it's also moulin rouge with the uh anachronism with the, with the music. Right. And it's sandwiched between those movies. But where's, you know, where was A Knight's Tale's Oscar nominations? I don't get it. Great fucking question. Because I will tell you this much. Say what you want about the rest of this movie. And yes, I know this is a soft spot for me. And yes, I know quarantine has made it even worse. But I got super choked up at the whole storyline of uh, of his of him finding his father again. Of, of Will finding his father again. I was like, absolutely, this works for me. Oh, it's a really well done section. Like the the you know the the moment where Dad realizes, oh God, is this my son? And you know, did he follow his feet home? And you know, when he says yes, he did, and that moment of Dad just crying, like oh my God, my son is back. It's so yeah, I know it's fucking with you now. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like this movie could have been an absolute joke. Mm-hmm. Like, and especially at the beginning, like. When I was about to do the rewatch, I was like, they don't do the wave, do they? It's like, no, I'm thinking of Men in Tights. <laughs> it's Men in Tights where they do the wave. But no, they do it in this movie. And I was like, so after that, I was expecting something very stupid. But they play everything very sincerely. And like every mark hits because they like it's a very loose, fun movie. But like they know how to hit it when it needs to be hit. Yeah, and that's that's and that's straight Helgeland. Like Helgeland is a fucking genius. Yeah, I mean, you, you, there's so many pitfalls that this movie could have fallen into, and I feel like the biggest problem this movie has is everyone assumes that that is what the movie is. Everyone assumes just by looking at it that it is going to be the kind of movie that it could have been if it didn't have somebody like Helgeland helming it, and it it manages to earn every single moment, every fucking moment. It it earns all of its moments so well that it even earns moments that aren't from this fucking century and i think that's what's so magnificent yeah indeed well i, I want to go back like when i watched rewatch this i was like just kind of stunned at how young heath ledger looks and heath ledger did not live to be very old but like it's like when i was like this is feels like a teen movie 
Like, he even has a part where he has to learn to dance before prom. Yep. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, that, it's very much what that was. And and he, uh, it was, in fact, and that's how it was seen at the time. Uh, a lot of critics really disregarded this. And a lot of us were seen as um, as being goofy for, for even entertaining that this was a fun good movie like a lot of a lot of critics lambasted it early on for its anachronisms and for its teeny things and they wanted you know they wanted another gladiator you know much like your dad and instead (laughs) got this really great teen sports movie yeah even if you like if you glance out of the side of your eye like paul bettany kind of looks like matthew lillard and uh, Alan Tudyk kind of looks like Seth Green. <laughs> you hit me with the lance, dick! <laughs> oh my god, I would have watched that. Okay, yeah, I would have watched that too. If Matthew Lillard was Jeffrey Chaucer in this movie, I still would have been there opening day. That would have been. In fact, knowing me and my horror obsession as a kid and how much Scream affected me, I probably would have been more excited for this movie if Matthew Lillard was Jeffrey Chaucer, despite the fact that he got the chance to play almost that exact same role in In the Name of the King, and that went disastrously bad. (laughs) It behooves you. It behooves you. (laughs) Oh my God, In the Name of the King is one of the worst things ever. It's glorious. Burt Reynolds hears that whole speech and he's in a crowd of extras and just goes, yeah. That that's the Uwe Bowl one, right? That yeah. Is. Oh my God, that movie. It's it's a it's a medieval movie with ninjas because fuck it, man. Like those, you know, after the first few Uwe Bowl movies, he tightened up his shit to the point where it wasn't like bad enough to be funny anymore, but it wasn't good enough to be good. It was just ugh. I contend he still. He, I I contend that he made one good film. And and that's Rampage. I'm just imagining now, in the name of the king, Super Ninjas. Fuck it. The confrontation. Wait, ra- wait, wait, wait. Rampage, the giant monster movie? No, no. He made a, a small film called Rampage in the aughts, which was literally about a kid who ordered a bunch of uh, guns and body armor through the mail and goes on like 10 minutes in, he puts on body armor and walks through town going on a shooting spree. I cannot possibly imagine watching that movie today. I can't even fathom sitting down to watch Rampage. To Like that just, no, no, I'm good. I still have the news. I don't fucking need to watch. I, I, I can't. Why would, uh, yeah. I, I haven't watched it since it came out, but at the time it was very, uh, it, it, it had a lot to say. And it was the first time Uwe made a competent film with something to say. And it was worth watching and digesting. And that's the only one. It's the first time he directed a movie without looking at his cell phone the whole time. Also true. And I think that might be. I mean, sure. I'm sure it's of good quality. I'm just saying the content. I can't even fucking imagine trying to digest that right now. Yeah. You know, it's weird because he made most of those movies before smartphones existed. So he's just looking at his like flip phone. He's playing snake. He's totally playing (laughs) snake the whole time he's directing. He was famous for the fact that he was always on the phone while they were doing scenes and such because he was always trying to get money for the next film like he spent all of his time producing while he was supposed to be directing and he would that like, makes sense then hang up the phone or pull the phone away from his ear and give a direction and then go back to talking on the phone i can't sweep all the minds away to fuck it cut like just really angry dude that dude seen me naked that's still that that is something that's never gonna that's something i will never scrub from my brain and we're gonna need to pause the podcast really quickly just a quick jurgen pause now the fuck did you just say? Have you have I never told you this story? Clearly not. 
Okay, so um, it was early Fantastic Fest, and uh, there was and Uve was boxing Tim League, uh, and it was the night that I was boxing Scott Weinberg, um, and uh, so I go into the locker room and I'm getting changed and I'm stripping off my clothes and I'm about to reach for the clothes that I'm going to put on and I'm bare ass naked and Uve walks in, stops, looks me up and down, and then gives me the nod and walks off. <laughs> And then I'm like, well, that's fucking awkward. And then I'm getting ready to go out. I'm doing some push-ups, and he walks by again and he looks down and he goes, finally, somebody who takes this fucking seriously. And <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, this shit is fucking happening. And, uh, and yeah, so that's the, uh, uh, that was, uh, the awkward time I was changing and got checked out by Uwe Boll. I bet you thought you were alone in the dark, but it turns out Uwe Boll was right there with you. Oh, there was only one set of footprints because Uve was carrying you. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> I have no idea. But yes, uh, true story. Well, Stargrove. Stargrove. We'll return after these messages. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's uh, one other like thing I've gleaned from the uh, DVD commentary. or This was a deleted scene, the part where he's in the stocks and like the crowd is like yelling and screaming at him. And uh, Paul I mean, Chaucer steps up and he's gonna shut everyone up. He's like, "Listen to me, listen to me." And he—that's as far as he gets before he gets like shouted down and pelted with rotten tomatoes, much like the movie did at the time. Hey, but, <laughs> yeah. But there's like a full scene where he does actually get them to shut up, where he gives another big Chaucer speech, and he shuts everyone up. And that was cut because they wanted to build up the uh, the prince more, like. Well, like the way it works with the speech is that he's turned over the crowd and then uh, the, the prince steps in and is like, it sounds like the prince is stepping in to shut up the crowd from cheering him. And that doesn't work. But I also feel like it matters more that uh, he's giving it his all trying to save him and he can't do it. Like this is like the one time his gift of gab fails him and it's heartbreaking. And I do, I do think it works better the way they they cut it in the theatrical release like that was like my heart broke for him yeah or you could read it a third way which parallels nicely to street fighter where he thinks he's quieted the crowd and then he turns around and it's because it's the black prince is there very much like when guile thought all of the bison troopers were backing down from his one switchblade when it turns out the entire a and force was standing behind him with guns and yes i found a way to wedge street fighter into this movie fuck all of y'all i did it game over well, they're both sports movies. They're both sports movies for sure. <laughs> oh, no, wait. One should have been a sports movie. <laughs> yeah, one of them didn't have any street fighting in it. <laughs> no, no, no. Blood Sports a sports movie. It has it right there in the title, and that's what Street Fighter should have been. But, I, I mean, I love all the build. I love the fact that, you know, William is winning matches left and right, but because 
his rival is off, you know, fighting in an actual war. He feels empty about all these victories. And I love the scene where they bring him like medieval ESPN. They bring him these parchments with all the results of these tournaments. And he's just like Liechtenstein, Liechtenstein, Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. <laughs> and he's like, I've got to face this guy one more time. They end up meeting. Of course, they meet at the Grand Championships in London, uh, you know, where William has reconnected with his father, which has cost him uh, his uh, seemingly his chance to compete until in swoops our boy Purefoy to actually knight him. And I love the line. It's like, I have my historians have discovered he's descended from royalty, an ancient line of nobility. And that's my word. And it's beyond uh, what does he say? It's and as such is beyond contestation, beyond contestation, yeah. which I contest is a word. But uh, but he's basically just like, yep, yeah, he's royalty. Everybody shut up. I'm the prince. Fuck you. And then he knights him. And I, that's like a really moving sequence. And then they still manage to pile drama into that last matchup where it looks like he's going to lose. And then he turns the hat around backwards. He has a fucking Lincoln Hawks moment. And nobody's going to tell me differently where he throws the armor off. And it's like, no, I need to be lighter. And I'm going to go at him with my armor off. And I'm like, fuck, yes. The the bad guy also cheats. He sweeps the leg. He does yeah. sweep the leg. He sweeps the leg, Johnny. Fucking asshole. Yeah, he's got like a an actual lance instead of like a, a fake sports lance, I guess. Where he can like actually like kill someone with it. Mm-hmm. He goes in with it. I mean, he's basically like he, he he gets in trouble for corking the bat. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's <laughs> yeah. putting a point on the end of your lance and jousting is the medieval equivalent of corking the bat in baseball, which baseball, for those of you who don't remember, used to be a sport, uh, but isn't at the moment. So we, we may have to come back to that reference another time. Oh, man, I, I have the perfect uh, sport for uh, the quarantine jousting yes because with the lances you have to stay six feet apart (laughs) (laughs) okay here's what we're gonna do we get two like uh priuses with the sunroofs right and we just have somebody drive and we stand up through the sunroof and we do prius jousting can we make that a thing is that is that is that safe that's totally safe right that's safe all right fine whatever i also thought they should have cut they were right to cut that big chaucer speech because chaucer has already another big moment right at the climax like the, you don't want to make him too perfect i guess but like his big he saves william by stalling the crowd while they you know strip him of the armor and uh fake tie the lance to his uh, arm and i was like yeah that is the amount that chaucer should do he is the best character in the movie but he is still a side character yeah, well, and it really works there because what really works about that moment is the fact that what the prince is taken by is how much his men love him. And that is something that, you know, a knight was essentially a leader, uh, you know, was leading men on the battlefield. And the fact that these people were willing to, you know, be pelted by stuff just to stand in front of their leader meant the world to this guy and was like, oh, yeah, no, this guy's clearly a motherfucker. Like these people are standing by him during the very worst. And uh, and had Chaucer given that speech, it really would have taken power from the magic of that moment. The magic of that moment is that they have no control and there's nothing they can do but stand there and get pelted. And that makes us endear. It endears us to that moment even more. Well, it actually reminds me of a moment, uh, a short moment earlier in the film where they tell uh, William he's about to be arrested. And like, it was like, well, the only ch- chance is to run. He's like, no, I can't make my, you know, beautiful girlfriend, Shannon Sussman, or Sussman, live in the hovel with my pigs inside in the winter when they freeze. And she says, yes, I will do that. And that kind of sold me on the entire romance, too, because mm-hmm. otherwise, she, 
she she does come off a little callow sometimes earlier in the film like like when she tells him to lose the fight and she's like clearly getting turned on by it when he actually does yeah and like it it's very teenage let's say yeah she's like humping that wood pillar the whole time that he's losing and i'm just like i don't know what pornhub search tab this is but it's doing it for somebody <laughs> well, I mean, the thing there is that, you know, his biggest problem at that point as a character is his ego. And she needs to understand that he'll get knocked down a peg, that he's willing to not be the winner um, at times. And that was that was super important to her because she was tired of all these arrogant fucking douchebags that are throwing themselves at her. Like everybody wants, you know, uh, wants her on their arm. Uh, and in fact, that's it's one of those great things that um, uh, that uh, 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 very early on that she cues in on and really kind of attracts her to him is he's the only one who who doesn't say, I'm going to win this for you. Like the very fact that he he doesn't try to impress her that way um, really, you know, does something. I, I mean, I, and I know this from experience this is very much how me and my wife ended up, uh, you know, husband and wife yeah. is I met her. And started flirting with her and I met her sister, her identical twin sister at the same time, but wasn't talking to her sister at all. And I was the first guy to ever hit on her that hit on her and not her and her sister at the same time. And so she just zeroed in and went, oh, oh, this guy's interested in me. And that's very much what that moment is. It's this very, you know, she she zeroes in on that, but she wants to make sure he's not an arrogant douchebag and that he's okay with losing. And the fact that he's willing to lose uh, means everything to her. And then she realizes what she's fucking putting him through and like, oh shit, we, uh, we need him to get back on this horse because he's going to die otherwise. Well, congrats for being just not creepy enough, Cargill. That's, that's a wonderful story. Uh, Dude, it worked out. <laughs> it did work out. He keeps his eye on the target or the arrow, as it were, as he says later. Dude, I tell you, as a, as a husband to a twin, somebody who watched it happen for years, that the whole thing of guys coming up and hitting on twins together it's it's the dumbest fucking strategy bro ham like what are you doing you can blame bud light for that bud light created a whole generation of people that thought and twins was the greatest thing ever so yeah because you know what i want when i'm having sex is to participate in incest this is the like, okay isn't that yeah. awesome Okay, I just want to say this exact same conversation has happened now twice on two different episodes within the span of a couple months with two different guests. And I do, it's because because Weinberg and I had this this uh, discussion on our uh, we were talking about Friday the 13th part four because there are twins in that movie. And that subject is like, why is twins the fantasy? It's like and I was like, I think it's because that's that's just a thing now. Like I was listening to another podcast that was talking about how the biggest thing in porn is like step sibling this and stepmom that. And I think it's just, I think that's just always been a thing. What are you doing? Step brother. It's just what the fuck is happening in the world. And on this episode where we're still talking about this Stargrove. And she comes to him and apologizes afterwards. Like, I did not actually think you were going to do it. I, you know, I, I did not know this was going to actually happen to you. And I am actually sorry. I'm not just jerking you around. And this, she could have been just like a nothing character or, you know, just a trophy or something like that. And she definitely feels like a major part of the story, even though she is just the love interest in a sports movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think She's really great. I think the other reason they cut that speech is because this movie is already 
of a pretty hefty length. I mean, speaking of Heath Ledger, this is about eight minutes shy of The Dark Knight. Yeah, it's shockingly long. I, I was very surprised. You know, it doesn't feel that long, but when I was like, I was pretty surprised to look at the runtimes. Like, oh, geez, like, do I have time to watch this? It moves like a rocket on rails. Like that two hours and 12 minutes just flies. Like it does not feel like it's dragging, but it is long. It, it moves like one horse careening toward another horse, knocking one guy off the horse who goes sliding across. My favorite shot of the whole movie. The guy go, gets knocked off the horse and goes sliding across the rail between them. That is mwah, chef's kiss stunt work right there. I got to say my my favorite, my very favorite thing about this movie is a single shot. I've always loved this about this. There is this amazing shot where um, they, the two lovebirds are standing in the church in front of stained glass windows, and they do something they very rarely do, which is pull the camera way back. And that allows both of the actors to look very, very small. And there's a reason why a lot of directors don't do that. You, you want your characters to look larger than life. You want it to feel like you're there. And instead, Helgelin decides to pull back and in doing so frames these as two young people in love and that they are that that they are small and mortal and normal. And I love how he does that and how he conveys that with just this one single simple shot. Yeah. I mean, speaking of AP English, that's your Eloise and Abelard shot. Yeah, well, I can tell you from the uh, DVD commentary, he had a reason for why he shot it like that. And that is that he ran out of time to get coverage. (laughs) (laughs) And that is also a big lesson I will share with you about filmmaking is sometimes a mistake will work out and you're supposed to just take credit for it. Yeah. I mean, we just talked about it with Brick last week about that amazing shot, the smoke coming out of the back of Dode's head. And it's like, oh, that was a mistake. I mean, basically what we did is we just complimented Spielberg on his restraint for not showing the shark as much. Yeah. Yeah, well, like I said, like I listened to the DVD commentary, and actually, when you listen to it, it feels like a very fly-by-night production, very you know, guerrilla filmmaking. Like it feels like this was like a first time they were like, and like when you know it, like there are like seams you can see because there are like jokes that don't really quite land, and it was like, oh yeah, we had to cut like the setup for that joke. Is that fly-by-night with a K? Uh, <laughs> Brian <laughs> K O, <laughs> and that brings us to the junk food pairing. Somehow, that was a perfect segue into the junk food pairing. Shut up! Of course, it was. And for this movie, uh, I thought a tenzi cake with peppermint cream would be a delightful junk food pairing because that particular item gets mentioned about seventeen times, and every single time by Alan Tudyk. And I'm not even entirely sure what it is, but man, did they make it sound tasty. For me, it was a hot dog. Oh, yeah. The one scene that always sticks out that is stuck in my brain since I watched it yesterday is just uh, the the opening We Will Rock You scene, and there's just a drunk chick dancing in the stands. And I was like, yeah, this needs a hot dog or a popcorn or a Cracker Jack. What is it about? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you entirely. I think it should, of course, be a ballpark hot dog at a ballpark because if you've ever had a hot dog at a baseball game, it never tastes the same anywhere else you go. And I don't understand why that is. Isn't it that they keep it in a saline, a warm saline solution that is just so salty? It's because it costs $19 and things change. <laughs> 
taste different when they cost nineteen dollars. Or at least they do at Yankee Stadium. Gotcha. So it's my bias. It's like if I paid nineteen dollars for it, it must taste like the greatest thing in the world. Is that yes? Yes. Well, I didn't expect to be psychoanalyzed, but thank you, Todd. <laughs> I appreciate that. Cargill, did you did you have yet a third junk food pairing? Well, I mean, cat meat and hot wine. I was <laughs> that was going to be my alternate. Yes. Cat meat. I mean, I don't know what you would do to sub it. I mean, I guess with instead of doing the cat meat, I would probably do some, you know, some nice shaved beef uh, on skewers, uh, you know, something you probably marinated a nice skirt steak or something. Uh, but yeah, cat meat and hot wine. Is that a reference to something? Or yes, yeah, that's what they're selling in the movie. They, to, in the stands, the guys walking around, cat meat, hot wine. Really, I missed that, and I've watched this movie like thirty times. You've missed cat meat, hot wine. Next time, now you'll never not be able to see it. It'll come up and it'll be like, fuck, it was here the whole time. Yeah, you'll be asking your kids, you want to watch that Heath Ledger movie, Cat Meat and Hog Wine? <laughs> oh, I, that's that seventies movie with the uh, uh, with Harvey Keitel, right? Yes, yes, I'm pretty sure Cat Meat. And Hog Wine is a buddy cop movie with Harvey Keitel and uh, and for some reason, Robert Blake. I don't know why. Uh, but no, I, I just remember that scene because I thought he was saying yak meat at first. The first time I watched this, I kept thinking he was saying yak meat. And I'm like, where the fuck in London are they getting so many yaks? And then he was like, oh, <laughs> cat meat. That makes a lot more sense. And ew, no, thank you. I will stick with my tansy cake with peppermint cream. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. I'll be here. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad that we got to joust about our feelings about a night's tale. And it, ultimately, I really do think this needs to be in the conversation with some of the the better sports movies of all time, even though at first glance of the of the Lance, you may not think it's a sports movie, but in fact, it 100 percent is. So I just have to thank I have to thank Todd in the Shadows once again for coming on and helping us cross a movie off our list that has been on there for far too long. Yeah, great movie. I'm so you know I wanted to do a music movie when I came on here, and you guys picked Street Fighter, and it's like, nah, we'll get, we'll try this again. <laughs> so let me let me explain to you the first rule of Salisbury. If you put Street Fighter on a list of possibilities, I am going to pick Street Fighter. So the best way to keep me from picking Street Fighter is to do what Cargill did for six years and just not make Street Fighter an option. Yeah. <laughs> like that's like this is these are the rules of Salisbury. There's another movie that I've kept off the docket for a long time that he's wanted to do. And so the first chance he got when I was unavailable, he got a guest and they recorded four hours of yeah. uh, recording for that that is coming up here shortly. I, I swear to God, I'm releasing it as four separate episodes. It is going to be the NPR serial edition of this particular film that <laughs> most people don't want an hour of, but I have four hours of, so fucking yeah, suck it. Todd, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the interwebs? You can find my uh, YouTube page, Todd in the Shadows. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, it's like at Shadow Todd. Uh, you can go to my Patreon at Todd in the Shadows. All of those are good. Patreon is the best because it gives me money directly. And your latest episode uh, of Train Records is awesome. Oh yeah, I did a recent uh, thing on Arrested Development's second album. And didn't uh, didn't somebody come out of the woodwork because of that? Yes, uh, the lead uh, rapper from Arrested Development has been promoting his stuff all over my uh, all over my video and my Twitter feed and it's exceptionally odd and I haven't responded. <laughs> <laughs> I've been so delighted watching that. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> well, speaking of promotion, Cargill, where can people find you on the interwebs? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Massaworm. That's M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M. You can find my other podcast right along with Dave Chen, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Salisbury. You can find us on uh, or at uh, Junk Food Cinema as well. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. We have a Twitch channel, and it's just twitch.tv slash Junk Food Cinema. Uh, Mr. Cargill is going to join me this weekend for a live uh, mailbag. We're going to be answering your questions via Twitch. That's going to be a lot of fun. And just a reminder, when we do get to 200, followers which we're like three away from right now uh the recording after that will be my wife cutting my hair live my first quarantine haircut and her first time cutting anyone's hair so it's going to be something so definitely follow that twitch account if you have not so if we become a lieutenant of megaforce tier do we get to have her do it with a lighter instead of scissors hey cargill that's a great question patreon.com slash junk food cinema if there's any possibility of that happening you're definitely going to want to become a patron post haste uh but remember guys glory and riches and stars may be beyond our grasp but a full stomach that dream can come true we can be champions of the buffet Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.